too. Good morning. Hey, we are walking through the book of Luke, and one of the threads that runs throughout this entire gospel, if you watch for it, you'll see that Jesus is doing ministry in word and in deed. And what that means is he's not just talking about the gospel. He's not just sharing the truth of God's love. He's physically doing something that becomes a, a way of showing the people that God loves them. So when you see all the, the miracles of Jesus, those are manifestations that, that, that Jesus does as a way of showing people God actually loves him. Right? So he is doing ministry not just with words but with word and with deeds. So if we read the Gospels, we see Jesus over and over having conversations, engaging the hearts of the people that, that he's talking to. And quite often, the people that he's talking to are the people that have been sort of uh, discarded, the people who have been ostracized or put on the outskirts of, of society. And, and somehow Jesus has is, is, is decided that he's going to go and he's engaging those people and he's showing them the love of God. It's not enough just to say God loves you. And, and really, all I want you to hear in that is that's what's required of us as well. That we're required to use our words, and that's important, and we always need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. That's using our words, but we're really also called to live our lives, to serve people in such a way that they see the love of God in our lives, that they see us showing the love of God. So we go to places like Ball State. Sorry, I just had a total block. Where are we going? I know we're going to a college camp. Ball State. We go to Thailand. We go to these places as a way of showing the love of God. We teach every willing third grader to read it at grade level. These are all ways that we do ministry in word and in deed. We're going to cover a pretty large section of scripture today, and we don't often take this big of a chunk of scripture, but I'm doing it because I want you to see the bigger picture. I want you to hear these stories in context. Sometimes when we take really small bites of scripture, we fail to see how it fits into the, the bigger story. The fact is, context matters. Knowing the backstory, what's going on, changes the way we hear and see stories. How many of you have been watching the Olympics? Come on, I know more of you have been watching it than that. Well, the fascinating thing is the more context you have, the more you get drawn into the Olympic story. So some of you have been really fascinated to watch Michael Phelps swim, but it's not just because he's a swimmer, it's because you know how many gold medals he's won, but, but probably some of you know that just a few years ago he was struggling with suicidal tendencies and he was kind of crashing at the last Olympics and somehow something stirred in him, he's had some kind of faith awakening and now he's swimming better. Well, it's all of that context that makes you want to watch Michael Phelps swim. You tuned in last night to see if he's going to get that one last gold medal. You put it all in context. Or if you watched the young girl that swam in, the, I think it was the 100 meter, and she won the gold medal, Simone, right? She was the first African-American woman to win a gold medal, and you saw her face. Well, it became a better story when you had it in context, right? It would have just been another swimmer had you not had the context. Or yesterday, we, you know, had a woman that won the silver medal in the 100 meter dash, and Meg said to me, you know that woman that we saw the story on, I think her name is Tori. She came from poverty. Her, grand, her parents left her with the foster system. Her grandparents came and got her and raised her, and now she's winning a silver medal. Well, you know what? She would have just been another runner, but it was the context of that story that drew us in. So that's what the, the network is doing. They're giving you context because it makes the story so much richer. The same is true with scripture. The more we understand the context, the more we know the backstory, the more, more we see the broader picture of what's going on, the more drawn into the story we become, and the more 
we actually see it for what it's actually saying. Context really matters. So, we're going to read a large section, and then we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. It's going to be difficult for you to read because I'm going to ask them to turn the lights down pretty low, and we're going to have a spotlight, and I've asked LaShawn to come up, and she can head on up this way, and, and she's going to read the passage for us. So if you want to try to read, it's okay. We're in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22, but my encouragement to you is just listen. Just listen as LaShawn reads and experience the story. Imagine the crowds all pressing in on Jesus. People have come from town to town, region to region. They're all coming. Imagine the heat of Israel, a very dry and hot climate. Imagine seeing the hills. Imagine seeing the crowds. Imagine being in the setting as she shares this series of spectacular stories. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went to woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. But when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, but he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them to enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they had fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at the feet of Jesus, he implored him to call come to his house, for he had only a daughter, 
about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he said, calling, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged him not to tell anyone what had happened. And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord, we just ask that the word of God would be the rule of our lives, that the spirit of God would guide us. Lord, we ask this morning that you would grow our capacity to know you, to know how much you love us. Pray that we would know the love of the Father that surpasses all knowledge. Pray that we would be rooted and established in love. Pray that you would strengthen us in our spirit, through your spirit, that you would do more than we could ask, think, or imagine. Though we pray every week that you would do great things in our lives, that we would leave different than we came because we've been in this place and interacted with the living God. We thank you for your presence, and we open our hearts to you as we were encouraged earlier to allow you to do the good work, the surgery that you wish to do. We surrender to you and ask that you would do that good surgery. Help us to leave different than we came because we've interacted with the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So if you haven't already, you want to turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to kind of walk through some of these passages and get rid of them. If I could get a couple of you to grab this and take it in the back, maybe, Sinead, do you mind helping out with that? Because I'll just run into it and make a mess. We lost somebody along the way. Thank you. Just set them in the back for me. Thank you. Give them a round of applause. This opening section, Jesus actually tells the disciples, he said, hey, let's get in a boat and let's go across the lake, right? So what I want you to hear in this is that the disciples are doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, right? They are doing the very thing that Jesus asked them to do, but in the midst of doing that thing that Jesus asked them to do, they run into some interference. They run into a storm. They, they experience difficulties. And the, the simple thing I just want you to get from that is that you can be doing the very thing that God is asking you to do and still experience difficulties. I would say sometimes because you're doing the thing that God wants you to do, you are more likely to run into opposition because Satan doesn't want you to do the very things that God is calling you to do, right? So this big storm comes and, and, it, and it's blowing and the waves are huge and the disciples are afraid, they're afraid of the storm and they, they cry out to Jesus and Jesus gets up, he wakes up and he steps into the chaos of the storm and everything settles. And I start with this paragraph in Luke 8 because within this paragraph are two questions and these two questions become the framework for the entire talk this morning. After Jesus calms the storm, he asks the disciples in verse 25, he asks them this question. He says, where is your faith? It's a great question for us this morning. Where is your faith? What are you trusting God for? What are you praying for that you need God to show up? Where are you placing your faith? Where are you with God? Who is God in your life? When you just think about your life, you can just ask yourself the question, where is your faith? And then Jesus, he, he calms the storm, and, and then the disciples see this, this movement of God, and they ask, who then is this? And these are the questions. And the fact of the matter is, these two questions are kind of uh, interlinked. You really can't pull them apart because the fact of the matter is, when you begin to answer the question, who, who is Jesus, really, who is Jesus, that has a huge impact on your faith, right? But he also, if you start to put your faith into action, you will begin to discover more and more who Jesus is. So there is this symbiotic relationship between these two questions. And these are both very good questions for you to ask of yourself on a regular basis. Where is my faith? Where am I in my faith? And, and who is God? Who is Jesus to me? Verse 24, Jesus says, where is your faith? And I've been wrestling with this question, asking this question of myself all week. And as I began to think about it, the realization is that all of life, everything you do, how you navigate life's ups and downs, how you move through the difficulties of life, all of life swings on the hinge pin of faith. 
You know what I mean when I say hinge pin? Have you ever taken apart a door? There are usually three or two pins that that sit inside of the the hinge that keeps the door swinging. If you were to take those pins out, you really no longer have a door. You have no ability for that door to swing open. You basically end up with something that just blocks your progress or always stays open. So the swinging of life, it swings on the hinge pin of faith. We've already read in this story that this huge storm comes and the disciples are afraid for their lives. So they're afraid of the storm. And in the midst of being afraid of the storm and, and lacking an understanding of what's going on, they, they turn to Jesus. So they have enough faith to, to turn to him. And then in verse 24, it says, Jesus awoke. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and they were calm. Jesus uses this interesting choice of words. Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. The connotation here is there was something more going on than just your average storm, something more sinister behind the storm. To rebuke is to chide something, to admonish something, to call something out. So we kind of know the word rebuke in our, own, in our own use of it. But here you have Jesus rebuking a storm as if to say, look, don't you know that, that this thing that's put in your way to do the thing I've called you to do, that it's evil that's, that's there. It's trying to keep you from accomplishing what I've called you to do. Jesus rebukes the storm. There's another storm in the Gospels. Remember when, when the, the disciples are out in the boat and, and they're afraid for their lives again and Jesus comes walking across the water to them, right? This is Matthew and, and in Mark. And, and when Jesus gets to the boat, all it says is Jesus gets to the boat and the seas go flat. It's calm. He didn't have to rebuke that storm. There's something different about this particular storm. The fact is, sometimes there is a force at work who's stirring things up to take us out of the very mission that God has called us to. Satan does not want you to do what God has called you to do. He wants you to be distracted. He wants you to be afraid. The disciples are doing exactly what God has called them to do, yet they are experiencing difficulties. We need to get to the place where we expect this, where we know that Satan does not have the ability to succeed if we do not allow him to succeed. Mark of a disciple is to hear and obey. So when you hear the word of God in your life, when you hear the revelation of God, when you hear the invitation of God, we saw this in the parable of the seed, Satan's desire is to snatch that away right away so that you don't bear any fruit from what you've heard from God. The question that we're asking this morning is the question that Jesus asked, where is your faith? You know, I've taught this passage before, and I always... Um, thought of this question as a harsh rebuke of the disciples too. Like he was wagging his finger like, what is your problem? Where is your faith? But I've seen it differently this week. I really don't think that's the case. That's not the way I picture Jesus. I picture him taking Andrew's face in his hands or maybe Peter or John and with a small smile on his face looking him in the eye and just saying, where's your faith? Don't you know I got you? What are you afraid of? Don't you know I'm here for you? It's not a rebuke. It's an invitation. Jesus is saying to you, he's saying to me, where's your faith? One of the threads that we see throughout the story, and the reason I wanted you to hear all these stories together, and if you go back and you read these on your own time, one of the things you're going to see if you look for it is you're going to see fear. Fear is so common. The disciples are afraid of a storm, 
And then Jesus steps in and he calms the storm. And in verse 25, it says, and then they are afraid and they marvel. Now they're afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of the storm. Now they're afraid of Jesus. And we need to ask ourselves, why would they be afraid of Jesus when he calms the storm? Because there's fear that comes with the unknown. Maybe it was fear of losing control. Maybe it was fear of something so powerful, a person so powerful that with just a word they could calm the storms. Look, you don't see this every day. It would have been shocking to their understanding. And and that power and that authority created fear in the disciples. Sometimes the work of God is so powerful and we see God doing things and in our humanness we become fearful of the very thing that God is doing and we pull away from it. And we see that in the very next story that Luke tells. There is a man who's possessed. The the word legion means a thousand. So by a thousand demons and Jesus gets to garrison and they get off the boat and the man cries out, the demons cry out, "What, what do you have to do with us? Don't torture us, send us into those pigs. Jesus gives them permission, showing that he has authority. The the demons leave. They go into the pigs. The pigs go crazy. They run off a cliff. The pigs drown. A, A vivid reminder for us that evil always brings death. So the pigs die, and there's something fascinating happens. This demoniac, he's healed. Is he physically or spiritually healed? Both. Yeah, you guys are catching on. I'm going to say that about a thousand times before we finish Luke. Jesus does both. He doesn't separate the two. Physical and spiritual healing always go together. The demoniac, he's healed. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's been given clothes to wear, which is a good thing. He's having this conversation in his right mind with Jesus. And you would think people would be like celebrating and ranting and raving. But verse 35 says, in the village people, I hate saying that, in the townspeople, Uh, They were afraid. Verse 37, it says, Then all the people of the surrounding country of Garrison asked him, Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. What I want you to see is that fear is pretty common. But fear does not have to win the battle. It does not have to win the day. We all have seasons of fear that, that come and go and there is a way for us to respond that's different than what the people, the question that Jesus is asking is, where is your faith? Is it possible that fear of the unknown, fear of losing control, fear of the power of God at work in your life has caused you to pull away? Fear is common, but faith has a way of overcoming fear. Jairus is a leader in the synagogue. And there's no question he was afraid his only daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, is dying. Just think of the fear that that must have created him. In desperation and in fear, he moves towards Jesus. We see a woman who's been bleeding for years and years and years, and she spent everything she had to be healed from this bleeding. And the fact that she was bleeding made her unclean, and it brought shame and, and into her life. And she's, a, she's ashamed of herself, and she doesn't know what to do, and she's afraid of being exposed. So she sneaks up to touch the hem of Jesus' 
robe, she is afraid. You see fear in both of them. But what you also see is in the midst of their fear, they exercise something about their faith and they move towards Jesus. And in moving towards Jesus, he shows up and he does more than either of them could have asked or imagined. Here we are 2,000 years later reading a story. They are forever put into the scriptures. The story of their faith put into action becomes something that we stand on the stage now and learn from. How amazing is that? Because they put their faith in action and overcame their fears. Where is your faith? Is it possible that fear is winning the day? The bottom line is fear really wreaks havoc in our lives. I have a dear friend, his name is Mike Mancinelli, and we've been journeying together for somewhere around 20 years. We meet every Friday with a couple other guys and we talk, but Mike is the one that first started to talk to me about how fear it just changes the way I respond to life. Really, what he would say is that all of your dysfunction comes out of fear. So you get in an argument, and when that, that conflict arises, you pull away and you hide and you don't engage in the conflict. You just kind of shut down. Guess what? That's out of fear, right? Or if you're a person that when conflict comes, you power up and you use the biggest, best words you got and you shut people down, guess what? That's fear, the inability to just be yourself in the midst of conflict is all fear-driven behavior. You're, whenever we put on a false pretense, when I want you to see something in me that isn't really who I am, it's fear-based. I wonder sometimes how much of what I do on Sunday morning is driven out of fear and driven out of faith. Look, I don't want to look silly when I come up here. How much do I prepare because I want to look smart? I want you to see something in me. And how much of it is just faith-driven? This fear and, and faith thing, it can get complicated, but we need to pay attention to it. And we need to ask ourselves, where is my faith? And where is fear getting the best of me? Is fear wreaking havoc in your life? Because the antidote to fear is faith. Faith is, is linked to the question, you know, who is this? The disciples ask, who is this Jesus? And knowing who God is, knowing all that Jesus has done for us, knowing who we are in God's eyes changes how we approach God. It changes how we exercise our faith. Do you know who it is that holds you in the palm of your hand? Who it is that holds you in the palm of their hand? Do you know who it is that knit you together in your mother's womb? Do you know who it is that knows every hair on your head? Do you know who it is that calls you by name? Because when you begin to know who it is, then it allows you to step into these difficult situations to face your fears with an incredible level of faith. I was sitting in my office on Friday morning trying to uh, finish up the sermon, and I got a call from a good friend, and I was so excited when I saw his name on the phone, and I picked it up, and he said, I got some bad news. Our friend Randy Reese died last night, and Randy's been a mentor to me. He's been a mentor to many of us in this church. He's just been a, a super good friend. He has encouraged me to walk out my faith. He's encouraged me to be a pastor in the church setting, just a wonderful man. Unexpected. He was just out for a run, finished his run, he was dizzy, he collapsed and he died, just like that. He had just finished running a marathon a few weeks ago, so no one ever expected anything. And I'm typing as I'm getting this phone call, all of life swings on the hinge pin of faith. And I could feel 
the Spirit of God just take my face in his hands? Just say, where's your faith? I don't understand. But I believe. So do you know? I got this. He says, where's your faith? It's a beautiful invitation to take the unknown, to take the fear and just lean into God and say, God, I don't have to understand because you do. Your ways are bigger than my ways. I don't like what I feel. I don't like what this means for his family, but I'm going to trust you. I have watched the journey of so many of you navigate the most difficult of situations from deaths of spouses to cancer And I have watched you take your fears and put them in the right place and exercise your faith and move into that chaos. And some of you come back to me and you say, I would never trade that thing for what God has given me as I journeyed through it. It's an amazing gift that God gives us. Many of you have taught me That in the midst of pain, when we exercise our faith, God shows up and he shows us that he is a good, good father in spite of how the circumstances play out. One of the things I love about this series of stories is Luke is writing each one of these stories to answer the question, who then is this? So he tells a story about a storm, and, and Jesus, he says he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. This is verse 24, and the, the waves, and they ceased, and it was calm. Who is this Jesus? He's the one who has authority over nature. He tells a story of demons begging to go into the pigs in verse 32, it says, so he gave them permission, showing us that he had total control, that he had authority. Who is Jesus? He's the one that has authority over demons. A woman reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment and she's healed. And Jesus says, I can tell in verse 46 that power has gone out from me because he has the authority over disease. Jesus takes a dead girl by the hand and he says, wake up. Verse 55 says, and her spirit returned to her and she got up at once. Who is Jesus? He's the one that has authority over death. And in every one of these stories of power and authority, we can pull back and we can be afraid of all of that power and all of that authority. But the only time we pull back is when we don't realize that all of that power and all of that authority is wrapped in the person of Jesus who loves us beyond our wildest imagination. All of these stories are told to show us that God is moving towards us with compassion, with love. Jesus did ministry in word and deed to show us the love of the Father. And if we are in fear of all of that power, all of that authority, it's because we just don't understand how much God loves us. Jesus has all authority. Nature obeys him. Demons obey him. Disease obeys him. Death obeys him. And then he does this amazing thing. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says he gets the disciples together and he calls the 12 together and he gave them the power and authority over demons And to cure disease, when Jesus commissions his disciples, when Jesus commissions us in Matthew 28, he says, 
to them, all authority has been given, on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. There is this amazing transference that takes place that through the work of the cross, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit in our life, the authority that is Jesus is transferred in us. In Jesus' name, we have authority over the very things that are getting in the way of our lives. We have the authority to live lives of victory in Jesus. You should say amen to that. We are empowered through Jesus, through the cross, through the Holy Spirit, to move through life with power and victory. The question for this morning is, where is your faith? Who is this Jesus to you? I have no idea what you're facing this morning. But I do know that there is an invitation this morning to every person in this room to put more of their trust in Jesus, to exercise more faith, to surrender more of their lives to the one who knows them best. You know that God knows all of your faults. He knows all of your sins. He knows all of your warts. He knows all of your wrinkles. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows the worst things about you, yet he loves you more than anyone else. He says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I don't do this very often, but I really felt prompted as I wrote this sermon to do it. I just want to ask everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. If you are in this room today and you have never said yes to Jesus, would you do it today? Jesus came, he walked this earth among us, he suffered for us, he went to the cross, he died, he was buried, and he rose again so that you could have victory in your life. And he's saying, would you just exercise some faith? Would you just say yes to me? If you have never said yes to Jesus and you want Jesus in your life, I just want you to be brave enough to raise your hand, to just say, I want Jesus, God bless you. And if you would just pray this prayer in your own spirit, Lord, I'm a mess. I give up. I surrender my life to you. Don't let fear keep you from praying that prayer. Trust that God loves you and say, Lord, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Jesus, would you take over? Pray that prayer in your own spirit. There's a whole nother group of people in this room, you know as you've listened to me talk that you have just gotten off the path. And you just need to say, Lord, would you help me to get back on the path? Would you help me to put my faith in action? Would you help me to know how much you love me and how much you care for me? Just pray that prayer, Lord, restore me. So Lord, we just give this service to you. I give the movement of your spirit to you. I ask for the people in the room who said yes to you for the first time that they would be brave enough to come down and share that with one of the prayer people down front for the people who have rededicated their lives to walking in faith to you. Lord, help us to be people who walk out our faith. Thank you that you are a good, good father, that you can be trusted. All authority and all power wrapped in the person of Jesus. 
who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing for us. Lord, may we just feel that truth deep in our spirit and know that we can trust you, that we can surrender to you, that what you have for us is far better than any plans we have for ourselves. Thank you for these powerful stories in the Gospel of Luke. Help us to walk faithfully with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you were moved this morning and God did something and you want prayer, we have a prayer team down here. We would love to meet you down here and pray over you. God bless you. You have a great Sunday.